Um, I, I've been here a couple times now, right? <laughs> and I, I usually have some sort of a um, hook that leads into the sermon, uh, whether it be some sort of a movie, uh, television show, something revolving around pop culture in the sense because it's something we can grasp a hold of and sort of run with that momentum right into the sermon. So you're all familiar with it, right? So, and I have fun with it, i got to be honest. This morning I don't have one. And I did that intentionally because... Um, <laughs> can you tell I'm nervous? A little more than usual. The word God led me to, to share this morning, is, um, is interesting. I usually have fun with this stuff, and it's hard to do so with this. So much so that your pastor and I met uh, for lunch. I don't know where he went. Um, and uh, we hung out, chat for a little bit, a couple hours. And we usually do that, what, once a month or so, once every two months. And I told him what God had placed on my heart and my mind to share, and I was nervous. So I don't have a hook, but I did have a little bit of trepidation but thanks to this man you call pastor here, a lot of it went away. So uh, I do have notes, and I think I spent too many years on the ambulance because I have notes on here, and then if that spontaneously combusts, I have this here, and I have one in my left sock. So um, <laughs> expect the worst and hope for the best. That's, that's what ambulance work does to you, I guess. So uh, that being said, I do want to... Excuse me, I do want to open with some sort of a hook. I want to share, before we get into the word, uh, a little bit of background of exactly where we're at. Just very quick, a few, few seconds. We're, this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 7, and it's very difficult. It's, it is, in fact, a bumpy road. I would warn you this morning to put on your seatbelts, but I promise you this, with all earnesty, that I have within me, I will guide us down this tumultuous path as gently as I know how. So, but if we back up to chapter 6, we're all familiar with this story, and it's interesting because I felt God leading me to talk about that. And the practicality of it is just absolutely amazing. And this is the story of Jericho. Sound familiar? We all know what this is, right? Big walls, big city. Uh, cool name, a lot of people. They thought they were safe. So what happened to this city? The, the walls ended up falling flat, didn't it? Well, see, God gave the instructions of something extremely important to the Israelites, and I think they sort of forgot. At least one of them did, and we're going to talk about that story. But the idea was is that when you take this city, anything in there, is to be called what's called, uh, Pastor, help me out, accursed objects. And it's not as bad as it sounds. What it really means is dedicated or devoted things. Excuse me. And which means that it was meant for the Lord's storehouse. Everything in that city was meant and reserved for him, correct? Well, let's get into Joshua chapter 7. Um, would you please stand for the reading of the word? And Ryan, whenever you're ready. Tina? Thank but you. the children of God of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. 
for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebedee, the son of Zerah, and of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out of the country. So the men went up and spied out of Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about the 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by the households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zerites, and he brought the family of the Zerites man by man, and Zabadee was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zebedee, and the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, 
Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and said to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. Please be seated. So, I don't know how many times back, but you witnessed me speak on something for about an hour for two verses. So, if you're not shaking in your shoes, you should be. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It is not going to be that long. So, uh, you can take that off, Ryan. Thank you. This, so you can understand, you can clearly see how this is a sobering topic. We're, we're talking about hidden sin and the, the penalty, if you will, um, of what it does to us. So, no movie, no TV show, no hook. This is a serious, serious topic, folks. So, let's get into this. Father, we come before you this morning as we do. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word that refines us. Lord, we thank you for that long process of sanctification that rids us of the many things which tend to cling to every part of us. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I ask you earnestly in every fiber of my being that you would help me to step out of the way. My thoughts, my opinions, what I think is so, what I don't think is so, remove that from this place that you might speak through me. And as I always do, Lord, I beg of you to restrain the adversary this morning that as your word goes forth, it might accomplish what it was sent forth to do. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to get right into Joshua chapter 7. And this, yeah, so Israel had just, as I mentioned earlier, they had just been to Jericho. And, and this, this went really well for them, didn't it? What did we see happen? We saw them marching around this city for how many days? Six days, shouting, blowing trumpets. And I would be remiss, and if I didn't mention, it's going to come up later, that they were carrying a big box, the Ark of the Covenant. Are you familiar with this? Anybody who's seen Indiana Jones might be a little familiar. I think it looked a little bit like that. We're not positive. So, and something amazing happened. The walls fell flat. They had just been involved into this military conquest of massive size, and it was amazing 
to see these walls fall down right before them. At this point in the story, they are still basking in the glow of the great event. Think for just a second, if it was you and I there, and we're marching around the city and we're yelling, uh, blowing on trumpets, and on the sixth day, this, this incredible thing just happens. The walls just fall flat, and they overtake the city, and, and it, it's, from there it went very well for them, and it was by God and God alone. But how incredibly excited and unstoppable would you and I feel if we witnessed that? At this point, it's safe to say that they are sure that they are feeling quite unstoppable. They are certain that every obstacle in their way is going to be moved right out of their path. However, and this is interesting, because just right out of the gate in verse 1, we see a change of fortunes. We see a change of direction. God reveals the truth that he is upset with Israel, Israel thought that everything was okay. It went well with Jericho. I don't understand. What happened here? What's the deal? They thought they were standing on the edge of a great string of victories that would just continue forward. The word but in verse 1 is interesting. It signals, as I mentioned, a change of direction. Up until now, they had been blessed and used greatly by the Lord. But now things are about to change. What they didn't know was there was a serious problem in their midst. And this is where things get a little sobering. There was one man among them who was causing a problem for the entire army of Israel. One single person. The same thing is true in the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, there's no slide for that. Your spiritual temperature, you and I, whether we understand this or not, has a profound effect on the entire body of Christ. Think about this local body here. If someone is struggling to some great degree, are we not earnestly going to see it, recognize it, and be moved by it? Whatever you're going through is always going to affect the body. What you do affects the entire church body. How many times have we actually seen this? How many times have we imagined that this actually just isn't a thing? My desire in speaking to you this morning is not simply that we would become aware of this, but that we would, we would come before the Lord, repenting of the hidden sin in each and every one of our lives and the damage that it's done to us and others. The fact is, there are some things that you and I just can't hide. We like to imagine that we can hide things. We like to imagine that, that I'm the only one that knows about the many things that I struggle with. Numbers 32:23. you'll see a slide right up above, says this, and be sure that your sin will find you out. Psalm, nom, Psalm 90, verse 8, thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. We might not want to admit it, but sin causes problems. It causes problems for the one sinning, and it causes problems for everyone around them. We can imagine it's not really a big deal, and that doesn't hurt anything or anyone, because whatever it is I do when I leave here or in my home, well, it's private, it pertains to me, it doesn't really affect anyone, right? No, it, it does. It always hurts us and those closest to us. The most perfect and ridiculous example that I can think of 
Diane, help me out, a year and a half ago when I first came here and spoke on Romans 7. Does anyone remember this if you were here? There, there is this, um, I want to say re- relationship between Dr. Bruce Banner and the big green guy. Well, anyone that was near Dr. Banner, when the green guy, the Incredible Hulk, came out, it really didn't end well for them, did it? I told you it was silly, but it's very accurate. Most of us are just like Aiken from time to time. We allow sin into our lives and entertain it because we feel it's harmless. We try to hide those sins, and we try to cover them up. However, these verses here show us that some things just truly can't be hidden. Verses 2 through 5, I believe there's a slide. We're going to see 2 through 3. Israel was this determined people. They didn't give up. They were very determined. Israel was still basking in the victory at Jericho, as I just mentioned. When they looked toward Ai, there was this certain little town called Ai. I don't think it's a lot of people. I mean, it's got a tiny name. How bad can it be? We can handle this. They were a confident people, but a closer look reveals that their confidence was absolutely and indubitably misplaced. In verse 3, they believed that just a few soldiers were needed to take Ai. Not a lot of people, tiny name. We got this. Israel did not realize it, but they were living through one of the most dangerous times of their life, the time just after a great spiritual victory is a dangerous time for you and I. Think about the overflowing of confidence that we have. Um, Last time I was here, I talked about storms. We're either going into one, we're in one, or we're coming out of one, approaching another one. But think of the storm that you just went through. Maybe you saw God react and do something absolutely incredible. What does that do to our confidence? We almost kind of feel unstoppable in a sense, right? God's got this. I could mess up my life. God's totally going to take care of this. It's not entirely accurate. But when we see him do something, it builds this confidence in us. Confidence is a really good thing as long as one's confidence is in the right place, facing the right direction. When we're walking with our hope and confidence in the Lord, you and I are going to be victorious. But when our confidence is in our abilities... And in the power of the flesh, we are destined to fail. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest ye fall. So we see that Israel, they were this determined people, but now they're, something really bad has just happened. And Well, they've become this defeated people. When Israel went up to Ai, they suffered a terrible defeat of 36 This must have been devastating. Think about this for a moment. Because there was sin in the camp, 36 men died, 36 sets of children lost their fathers, 36 mothers lost their sons, 36 wives became widows. It was a very high price to pay for sin. When we take time to look more closely at their actions, it becomes very clear with the Israelites messed up. It becomes very clear what their mistakes were. And I want to point this out now. First starters, it doesn't even mention in the text that they prayed about this. I don't see it. It's not there. I looked. 
Did it happen and it wasn't mentioned? I don't know. When I worked on the ambulance and I was doing patient care, if I did something for patient care but didn't put it in the report, it didn't matter. It never happened. Is that the same thing here? I don't know. I don't think they prayed about it. It doesn't say that. If they did, God might have revealed the problem before people had to die. How many times are we guilty of jumping ahead of the Lord in his will? I've done it. We've all done it. What is the one thing that all of us in this room desire most from God? To be in his will, right? And if you remember, I talked about there's two different types of wills, but just to clarify, for a couple seconds, we have his general will, which is the same for you and I, our simple, humble obedience. And we have his particular will, which is different for every single person in this room. And the funny thing is, we're always try, striving and trying to reach after his particular will, whatever it is, but we skip past the general will. And ironically, the more that we line up with his general will, the more we end up in God's ultimate particular will. We like to try to jump ahead of things, don't we? The second mistake that I, I see here is they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant with them. There might be a couple of reasons for that. We'll get to that. But if we look at Jericho, it was there, wasn't it? They didn't just march around the city. They carried that thing. And from what I saw in Indiana Jones, it looks pretty heavy. So. <laughs> but they took it with him. The ark symbolized the presence of, and the power of God. They went into battle on their own strength here, without the power of God, and they failed. Here's an area where you and I could use help. We try to live the Christian life, fighting the flesh and the devil and our own power and what happens we fail time and time again. We simply don't take the time to strengthen our walk with God. When we're walking with the Lord and in his word, as we should be, we can be confident in the battles of life and face our enemies in the strength God has to offer. However, when we fall, we fail to real. We fail to utilize the whole armor of God. There's no slide, but we're familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians. And Denise, it's neat that you put this song up here, and I saw it immediately once you did. That's, that's God. Who killed the giant? David or God? Who's the one that killed the giant? Goliath. David himself answers that question. And all the assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, but the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David recognized in 1 Samuel 17, 47, that God was the one that took victory that day, not him. The third mistake is they were confident in their own power and not in the Lord. They were not necessarily walking by faith. They were guilty of trusting on what they could do. And I have to say this, kind of who could blame them in the sense they just saw Jericho. Maybe they thought they had the mightiest touch at this point, and whatever direction they went into, victory was going to happen. That's not necessarily the case, is it? God's direction is more important than our own. Which, by the way, no different than what we struggle with how many, every day. How many times have we just suffered defeat in our lives because we believed we could do it ourselves. We can't do it alone. 
We need the Lord in order to attain spiritual victory in our lives. Philippians 4.13. I think you have it up already. You do. Ryan's quick. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. John 15.5. This is interesting. John talks about, uh, or Jesus talks about it here in John, abiding in the vine. And apart from the vine, that we can do nothing. Israel was not willing to put everything they had into the task. In verse 3, the spies went up to Ai and returned and said this, make not all the people to labor thither, which basically means, dude, I don't think we need to take everybody. This looks easy. We got this. The city of Ai, this is really interesting. Let me backtrack. Their camp, the Israelites were in, in, in Gilgad. Gilgal was located about 800 feet below sea level. Well, AI was another 1,700 feet above sea level. And my math's not that great, but I think that's about 2,500 feet. That's a little bit of a climb. It sounds tiring. Israel couldn't see the point in sending all the men to do this arduous work. They didn't see the task at hand as being worth the effort it would require. When we start looking for ways to get out of our responsibilities before the Lord, we are headed into a mess of trouble, aren't we? He is worth every ounce of effort we can give. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall, we shall reap if we faint not. Israel now became this distressed people. After their terrible defeat at Ai, and I think it's actually pronounced A-E, but we're going to go with Ai, Israel now felt the same fear their enemies experienced. The same fear that their enemies experienced from Israel had reversed on them. Well, now they're experiencing this. This is new. I, I don't think I would like it. I'm sure that they didn't. This is one of the major problems with sin. It defeats you, leaves you feeling broken, used, and confused. Nothing is ever right in the heart of a believer while there is sin in our hearts. Have you ever had a time like this? What did sin do to your life? When you traverse down that road, what, what did it do? Did it beat you up? I think Rich Mullins said if you live the Christian life really good, you're going to get beat up really bad. I have, and most of the time, I've experienced this, and most of the time, I've got to be honest, it's a result of displacing God in my life. Uh, Proverbs, are, there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end leads only to the ways of death. Well, here comes the summons. Here comes God, and he's got something to share. Israel didn't know it was wrong. All they knew is they had suffered their first defeat. By the way, this would be their only defeat, which is interesting, which means they learned from their mistakes. God wants his people to have victory, not the defeat. So he takes the necessary steps to reveal to Israel just exactly where the problem lied. Verses 6 through 9, we see Joshua broken in an amazement before God. And this is interesting. After this tragedy occurs, we find Joshua broken, praying to the Lord. Still, there's a hint of anger and accusation towards, towards God. I'm not sure why anyone here would ever do that. I know that I wouldn't. 
<clears throat> Joshua is about to learn that prayer is correct recourse in the time of trouble. He will also learn that prayer will do nothing until sin is dealt with in our lives. Does this sound familiar? Joshua is sitting there trying to figure out, well, I don't understand. Why, why were we powerless in battle? Why did this even happen? Why did it go this way? I don't get it. After we've made decisions that bring terrible consequences, it's too late to play the game game. And it's never the right time to accuse God of anything. I've been there. How many of us have been there? You don't have to raise your hands. Raising mine. I'm okay with that. When there is tragedy in our lives, we need to look within to see what the problem is. When there is a lack of power in our life, the problem is not with God. It's not even with others. The problem is always with you and I. Verses 10 and 15 give us God's announcement. He said, well, here's, here's the deal, guys. Here's what's going on. While Joshua and Israel try to figure out what is happening, God in heaven already knows. He knows what the problem is, and he's about to tell Joshua. He tells him there's sin in the camp. And this is why he's withholding power and allowing them to be defeated. He, in turn, in verse 14, tells Joshua exactly how to discover the guilty party. Now, here's the deal. It's not necessarily the water outside of the boat that's the problem, right? How many of us have been on a boat to some degree? The water outside of the boat is not really the problem. The problem sort of comes in when the water outside gets inside. When there is an influence from the outside inside the body, that is where we have the problem. Often the greatest problems that we face today come from within and not from without unless the without comes within. You understand where I'm going. <laughs> Do not underestimate the amount of damage one sinner can cause. Some brief examples. Abraham nearly lost his wife when he went to Egypt, Genesis 12. Anybody remember this story? Uh, if I recall correctly, he pretended she was his sister, right? The boat Jonah was riding in nearly sunk when he ran away from God's calling to go to Nineveh. 70,000 people died because David disobeyed God by numbering the people. 2 Samuel 2.24, one sinner, one single sinner nearly destroyed the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, and the list goes on and on. You and I might feel like our sin is just this insignificant little thing, that it doesn't really reverberate into this big monumental mess. But that's how it starts. And yes, it does. It has the ability to even sap your church of power. It can devastate your family and leave ruin in its wake. It can destroy your life, leaving you broken and defeated. Ecclesiastes 9.18. But one sinner destroyeth much good. None of us can sin without affecting others. It just doesn't happen. We simply can't withhold lowering the temperature without lowering the temperature of those around us. The testimony of the church will always be dependent on the lives of every single believer there. Verses 16 through 21, we find 
we find Achan being confronted with his sin. God used a process to point out Achan. Well, God knew who was guilty. Why didn't he just tell Joshua right off the bat, look, man, here's the problem. This is what's going on. Look what he did. Why didn't he just tell Joshua who he was looking for? Why did this process have to even come into being? It doesn't say in the text, but here's what I believe. I believe it's because God is merciful and was giving Achan an opportunity and time to repent and confess of his sins. Unfortunately, Achan squandered the opportunity. He ignored it. He ignored the opportunity to do so. Be that as it may, the finger of God drew closer and closer, finally landing on Achan. Verse 19 through 21 says, in these verses, we see that Achan's sin is finally revealed. Well, well, now what? Well, now it's got to be dealt with, right? We saw that in the verses. If you can recall, it doesn't go to a good place. This is really, really cool. When I saw this in the text, I was moved for a couple seconds, and I just knew this is just... Verse 19 we find Joshua approaching Achan, approaching him about his hidden sin and what he did. What do you see? (laughs) He speaks to him with compassion. He knows that Achan is condemned, but Joshua still cares for the man that brought so much trouble to Israel. This is an absolute, clearest picture. I can imagine... While God hates sin with his entire being, he absolutely, what? Loves the sinner. Here we see Joshua giving us a perfect example of how God looks at us. This morning, know God is loving and gracious, exhibiting his greatness by wanting to cleanse you and I of our sin. Verse 20 and 21, we see this confession. This is interesting. Achan finally confesses his sin. You got me. I did it. Although he showed no signs of remorse or repentance, he only confessed his sins after he got caught in them, probably because it would be impossible to carry on any longer. All right, you got me. I did it. I'm sorry. Achan is yet another example of one who confessed their sins without true repentance. Uh, Pharaoh, Balaam, uh, Judas is on the list. Some confessed their sins and were forgiven. David. David was confronted with his sins. Do you remember this? He was confronted about his sins directly. He confessed afterwards, and what happened? He was forgiven. What about Nineveh? When Jonah finally made it, to Nineveh, and did what God wanted him to do, what did they do? What was their response? They repented of their sins, and what happened? Nineveh was forgiven. Jonah 3. So what is the difference? David and Nineveh, they were sincere in their repentance. They were sorry for their sins, and here's how we know why. There was a change of behavior that followed after. Achan's repentance was disingenuous and without remorse. You and I are expect, we're, we're expected to be open 
and honest about our sins, right? Is this an easy thing to do? Do we have difficulty? Can I just walk up to John and whisper in your ear, dude, you're not going to believe what I struggle with. I want you to know. Can we do that? Sounds a little weird. We're supposed to do that. Anyone familiar with John 5.16? I see two shirts that are very familiar. Celebrate recovery. You are absolutely familiar with John 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of what? Of a righteous man availeth much. We are told what to do and why to do it. We are told to confess our sins, pray that we... Pray that we are healed, and we are told why to do it. Because the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we attempt to hide our sins, we will never prosper, but will face God in judgment. One way or another, we will confess our sins. Excuse me. We have an opportunity to confess them now, where we can make a difference in that, don't we? God's given us this opportunity, whether it be this morning, yesterday, maybe tomorrow. Each one of us has a myriad of opportunities that at some point will run out. We have an opportunity to make a difference in our life right now, or we will do so in judgment, Philippians 2.11. Note the progression in Achan's sin in verse 21. I saw, I coveted, I took. Did you get that? I saw, I wanted, it became mine. I saw, I coveted, I took. This is the same exact pattern that sin always follows. It was this way in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through, 1 through 6. It was this way when David sinned with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel. And it will be this way with every possible example of sin you could possibly name or imagine. I saw, I coveted, I took. The book of James tells us you see it. We want it. It appeals to our flesh. You want it and you take it. The pattern sin takes is always the same. Okay? What do we do with that? If the pattern sin takes in our life and it's always the same, that means what? That means what we should do in response should always be the same. Take a look at Genesis 39, 12, and you'll find out what Joseph did. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Genesis 39, 12. 2 Timothy 2, 22, we are commanded to flee from youthful lusts. If the pattern's always the same we get attacked by, the pattern of running, fleeing, needs to be our always response. That is grammatically horrible. You understand my point. It needs to be the same. Run! Flee! Another problem, really quick. Achan calls the things that he took spoils. God called them what? Accursed things, devoted things, dedicated things. They're mine! Don't touch them! Achan's perception was a little bit off. When when he looked at them, he he called them spoils, plunder. They were mine. They were were just plunder. What's the harm in that? But God calls it his things, 
Which means, in essence, Achan was guilty of what? Stealing from the Lord. Achan had stolen his treasure, buried in his tent. And here's, here's the crazy part. He stole it, took it, hid it. He couldn't use any of it. Because if he showed anybody what he took, where in the world did you get that? I know where that came from. So it had to stay hidden. Uh, Lord of the Rings, what's the... Uh, Smeagol, his precious, he wanted it, just had to have it. Well, Achan couldn't use this thing, had to keep it buried. What was he going to do with it? I have no idea. The items that he stole were absolutely no good to him at all. And here's the, uh, here's the truly sad part of the story. Achan lost his life and condemned his family to death because he took the things that were dedicated for the Lord's use. Imagine... Imagine he must have justified. When, when we do something wrong, when we are disobedient, when we steal, uh, when we sin and whatever, we don't necessarily, uh, I don't know how to word this, we don't really judge ourselves, do we? We justify our actions, don't we? If we do something, well, here's why I did it. So it, it can't be bad, right? Wrong. It, it can be. I can imagine Achan thinking in his head, we did so long. We did without for so long in that desert. I deserve a little prosperity. No one will miss this little amount. After all, there's so much spoil. I'm just going to take a few things to help me and my family. Here's the crazy part. The very next chapter, verse 2, they overtake AI again, and this time they are victorious. God gives them the instruction that whatever is inside, take it. It's yours. I don't want it. I don't need it. Do what you want with it. So if Achan had just been patient for a few more days, he could have been satisfied with his needs, and as ridiculous as it sounds, his greeds. This is when you and I get into trouble. We want what we want, and we want it now, don't we? We don't like to be patient. I, don't, I struggle with patience. Who else? Anyone? We want what we want, and we want it now. We don't often think that God may have something far better to give to us, reserved for us. Doesn't matter. I see that. I want that instead. I don't know what God has for me. It might not be as good as that. It's usually way better. This just reminds us what sin really is. I think I have a slide for that, Ryan. Sin is a man seeking to fulfill a legitimate need or want in an illegitimate manner. Did you catch that? Sin is a man seeking to fulfill a legitimate need in an illegitimate manner. Verse 22 through 26, we find, we find Achan condemned. These verses give us this sad conclusion, the end result of exactly what happened to him because he had to have what he wanted, because there was sin in the camp. Achan and all he had were taken out and stoned. If we read verse 26, it talks about a heaping pile of stones. 
The Tower of Stones in verse 26 stood as a reminder to everyone that passed by that some sort of criminal was buried underneath all that, that a criminal was buried there. And that heap of stones, and, and by the way, this, this carried on, I want to say, until the late 1800s people did this. But that heap of stones signified as a warning to everyone that passed by that it was the, a very vivid reminder of the high cost of sin and the terrible wrath of God. The name of that valley was called Achor, which means trouble. And that's what God said would happen to the one who took of any of the spoils, chapter 6, of Jericho. If we as God's children have unconfessed and hidden sin in our life, and we do, we must understand that God will chasten us, and he will do so to bring us back in line with his will, Revelation 3, 19. And I believe there's a slide. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He will do whatever it takes. He will do whatever he has to do to get our attention. He's good at that, isn't he? Doesn't he know what it takes for each one of us sitting here? I'll tell you from life experience, he knows what it takes to get my attention, doesn't he? And it's different for all of us. God knows what it will take to touch your heart, and he is not afraid to pull on that heartstring if he knows that it's going to bring you and I to repentance. If you are lost today, God wants you to come home. I offer one final reminder, one final warning, that none of us sins in a vacuum. The things we do are always going to not just affect us, but they're always going to affect all of us. Years later, the prophet mentioned something amazing. The prophet Hosea mentioned this same valley, Hosea 2.15, and you'll find it up there. And I will give her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor, for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. And in that day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. The promise here is that this place of trouble will become a door of hope. When Israel returns to the promised land and the Messiah, the Messiah comes back. Folks, the same is true concerning us. If we come to the Lord right now, this moment, this day, this second, this service, if we come to the Lord in humble repentance, those sins that have the potential to cause so much trouble in your life and mine can be taken care of today. This service, literally, right now, can become a door of hope for you and I. If you will come to Jesus for the cleansing you need, some things just can't be hidden. If you have an aching heart, God has the cure. If you have hidden sin in your life, we all do. The Lord can forgive you and restore you for his glory. 
Father, I, I come to you this morning in humble repentance for whatever sins that I carry that are hidden, unspoken of, and out of sight. And if you are, if you are with me now, raise your hand. I, I petition for my brothers, my sisters, my family now that whatever hidden sin that we carry, that we bear, and we do, would be removed that you would cleanse us of this sin, that we might come to you pure. Father, we just thank you for your word that has this innate ability to cause a reflection and repentance within us. Thank you for this time that we've shared. We thank you for this message that doesn't come easily. And it certainly didn't happen easily for Achan and his family and the many others that were affected by the sin in his tent. Thank you for this time together, Lord. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.